Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us here on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to have Neil Shepherd alongside me. Neil is the founder and CEO of Customs Connect Group Limited, a company which aims to deliver real measurable opportunities for its clients to save money. Uh, Neil, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good morning, Scott. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a real pleasure having you on the airwaves with us as well, Neil. Um, normally, of course, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there uh, because it has, I'm sure you'll agree, proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for business leaders, leaders of governments alike as well. So firstly, how has this whole situation affected you and your operations? Uh, well, I guess we are in a fairly uh, fortunate position um, in that most of our work um, is completed using remote access, whether that be working from home, obviously from the offices uh, on occasions, uh, but also uh, across the EU at, at client sites. Um, and, and we actually uh, closed our offices three weeks before lockdown. So um, we, we already had all of the sort of IT provisions already in place. So for us, it was um, a, a fairly natural uh, progression into uh, into lockdown. I guess the probably the hardest part is uh, uh, the, the issues of every individual who, who you know who've been working from home and uh, and not getting out to, to see their families, um, which, which obviously. Uh, has to have an impact on uh, um, you know the, the the guys who who work for us. And just how important do you see mental health and well-being being within leadership, both in terms of safeguarding that of the people around you, and also your own as well, particularly at a time like this where there is so much stress and uncertainty. Uh, it is massively important. I mean, we we are um, a, a business that uh, is. Uh, um, very keen to look after, obviously, its, uh, its staff, but also the families. Um, uh, you know, we, we have uh, a lot of uh, uh, individuals working for the business, uh, I think, who, who enjoy working for us quite simply because we, we, we put uh, their livelihoods, uh, um, in all honesty, ahead of the business. Um, and I think that's why we have um, such a, a, a loyal bunch uh, of uh, um, of consultants uh, who, who work for Customs Connect um, means so much so that uh, we've actually now closed all of our offices. Um, there's a possibility that we will reopen in the new year in Manchester, mm. um, but the team have enjoyed working from home so much. And uh, in all honesty, productivity has uh, has increased. Um, and, and it has always been our sort of philosophy that, um, if you can't trust somebody to work from home, then quite simply don't employ them. Mm. Um, uh, and and that, that that seems to have worked really well. You know, talking to our clients who obviously are across the EU, with obviously a, a sort of a European focused um, business. Um, I don't think our clients have, have really seen any difference from obviously from our side of the uh, of the picture anyway. But for them, obviously, there's been some 
some huge changes, um, some of them, um, you know, completely changing the manufacturing processes. We have we have one German client who, who changed uh, almost overnight to manufacturing uh, gowns and, uh, and face masks and, mm. and the like. And that's all about, of course, adaptability and flexibility in the wake of crisis, just to keep sort of vital services being provided and also find sort of new income streams as well at the uh, the same time. We've seen so much of that in business during the uh, the last few months. And just sort of dwelling on that topic for a moment, we are on the programme um, in recent weeks and we're trying to sort of see the silver lining in what's been that a sort of dark and dense cloud over everybody. Um is there anything positive that you can take from this crisis management experience, if we call it that, in that maybe you have learned something from all of this? Um, that's, a, that's a really difficult question. Um, I, I guess the, 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 the positive that, that we can take out of this as a, as a business um, uh, for us is that at the moment, you know, we're, we're I guess, unlike a lot of businesses in well, not just the UK, but in Europe, but we're actually recruiting at the moment. Um, and I think it's fair to say that our clients, um, on the whole, um, are extremely keen to improve cash flow. Uh, and obviously the way we operate um, in uh, providing services uh, on a wholly contingent basis, um, that they really see that as, as being nothing to lose. So we, we've seen an upturn in, in requests for uh, looking at, uh, at how they are importing in the supply chain um, uh, and the, I guess, again, the advantage that we've seen, um, certainly in the UK and Germany, maybe not so much in the other member states, but certainly the UK and Germany, that, that reclaims have been turned around even quicker. Um, so it does seem that working from home uh, um, uh, is, uh, in some member states, um, working better which you know, obviously mm. as, a, as a as a taxpayer that that's really nice to see that um i mean we we had a record turnaround for uh, one of our scottish clients who had a, a reclaim uh, from start to finish done in just nine days whereas sort of pre-covid you were talking four to six months so so there, there are obviously some positives to to take out of this um and and i it's like I say, I think that uh, um, we've certainly seen an increase in productivity um, and I don't see uh, the real need for us to, to return to sort of pre-COVID operations where we have, um, you know, let's be honest, expensive satellite offices where um, we've got members of staff preparing to work from home. I think that's an incredibly important point because there are some elements that have come about from this lockdown period that will inevitably become a permanent part of the way that we do business in this country, particularly related to our working practices. And just again, keeping sort of relatively on that topic, um, with this sort of transition to remote working and a real shift in the way that we work, have you found yourself having to adjust your sort of typical leadership style, if we call it that, during this time, just to sort of better fit that mould of work? remotely and leading from a distance yeah absolutely um I mean, I, my, my ordinary um year um because uh, obviously I, I i travel all over um the eu um so my, my ordinary year would see um probably 50 to 60 individual uh um trips uh, around the eu uh, and obviously that includes um uh, colleagues 
um, from different parts of the business, dependent obviously on on who we're seeing and and uh, and what project we'll be working on. Um, so that sort of interaction, I, obviously, I just don't have. Um, I think before lockdown, we've had um, just four of those uh, meetings. Obviously, since lockdown, um, that that's been zero. So yeah, absolutely, it's been a huge change. Um, and I think the first thing that we did. Uh, was to um, make sure that we would have regular um, team meetings, um, but but not necessarily the whole group. You know, I, I have uh, encouraged the team to you know just do one on ones. I say you know even on a Monday morning, even if you don't have anything to discuss with uh, you know one of your colleagues, um, arrange a teams meeting and just discuss what you've done over the weekend. Mm. Well, Quite simply, that's what you would do if if you were in the office. You know, the first half an hour on a on a Monday morning is uh, um, is well for us generally talking about football, but uh, obviously what what we've done over the weekend and that, yeah, that that has been uh, um, encouraged. Uh, and you know, in fairness, the the team here have taken that on, and uh, as a result, we you know we, we have daily teams meetings, whether that as I say is just a a one-on-one or or as uh, project team um, or the whole uh, whole group itself setting up a, a, a semi-regular um, video call so that uh, you know we, we we at least can see each other and, and know what's happening in uh, in our lives. I think that's such an important point because it isn't simply replicating that face-to-face interaction in formal business meetings. It's also just to keep the mental health well-being good and also the morale high. It's about replicating the sort of casual interaction that would take place in the office as well. So you can certainly see why you've gone down uh, that route. Moving away from COVID-19 now, just to sort of reflect on your career just a bit more broadly, Neil, I understand you have decades of experience in international trade and customs um, in that sort of sector. Um, But what would you say was the moment where you knew that going and founding your own business, Customs Connect, was going to be the way forward for you? Um. Well, to be honest, it was a, a conversation uh, with a colleague who, who sadly is is no longer with us, a, a, a guy called Steve Guyquad. And we were working in a sort of mid-tier accountancy firm at the time. Um, and we'd been approached by another company um, uh, and they wanted to uh, uh, take our, our small team of consultants across to them, sort of lock, stock and barrel. Um, and we, we were... Sort of midway through those negotiations, and uh, and 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 Steve raised the question: um, Well, why, why are we doing this uh, to line the pockets of uh, somebody else when uh, you know we've got a great client base who who you know have followed us um, through various stages of our working careers? Um, uh, and and yeah, he, he raised the question: Why don't we? set up our own business, which is exactly what we did back in uh, in the summer of 2009. And in all honesty, we've, uh, we've never looked back. And given your many years experience, not just in the sector, but also running your own business now, for those younger listeners, especially who might be tuning into this today, um, what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success for those especially who are thinking of stepping into leadership roles for the first time or maybe going into business for themselves? Um, I guess it's like it's like anything in life, isn't it? You, you 
identify the people who have had success, who have the experience, who have the knowledge, um, and tap into that. Um, you know, for me, uh, I received some uh, extremely good advice from um, uh, a friend who I worked with in the corporate tax uh, area. Um, I was have a, again, very fortunate that friends in uh, the, the legal sector um, and the finance um, sector, um, and and they gave me some uh, really good advice on, you know, when when setting up the business, um, you know, you need to be looking um, to the future and make sure that your business is future proof, um, and having people um, with experience in those sort of different fields has proven to be uh, invaluable over the years. So, yeah, you know, don't be frightened of uh, uh, of asking some very uh, silly questions um, because it tends to be those that, uh, if you don't ask them, it's those that, that trip you up. It's important to remember, isn't it, that even leadership is still a process of learning. We never stop learning. It's a constant process of development and improvement. And it's about also accepting that, once or twice there might be mistakes along the way and then embracing those as an opportunity to learn and improve as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, say, I mean, I've, I've been extremely fortunate um, in that um, I mean, back in 2016, we, we took on uh, an investment from private equity uh, and they, they've been unbelievably supportive uh, over the last three to four years. Um, uh, and, um, and again, during that, uh, period of in- investment, uh, we were extremely lucky to take on um, a chairman with um, a colossal amount of experience. Uh, and uh, as a mentor, he- he's proven to be uh, um, extremely good for me. I think as an individual, which which then rolls out to the business as well, who who also take advantage of, uh, of, of the the experience that he passes on. Now, unfortunately, Neil, our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close. But just before we do wrap things up this morning, I would like to talk about the future because we know that over the course of the next year, we're going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal as it's been built. But what is it that you're hoping to achieve at Customs Connect during this period? And where do you see the business being in 12 months' time? Um, Well, I guess there's, there's sort of two very important issues for us as a business. Uh, the first one, um, uh, and I, I, everybody is probably just going to um, uh, roll their eyes in a, a huge sigh when I use the word Brexit, but, but obviously for us as an international trade business, um, that, that is massively important. And we are seeing a, a huge upturn in interest now. Um, we're obviously, with, with, with COVID-19 uh, um, businesses, uh, well, whether they're returning to the new normal or not, but, but Brexit is now really beginning to uh, ramp up interest. Uh, and we're getting a lot of uh, of inquiries across Europe, not just the UK, but mostly, honestly, from, from European companies at the moment. And for us, it would be, it would be really nice, I think, as a best practice representative um, to, to, to get involved a little bit. I, I have spoken to to Graham Brady, uh, and I have offered uh, advice to uh, to Michael Gove's Brexit Readiness Unit. Um, I think it would be nice to, to, to get um, more involvement in that and to be able to provide you know the experience and the knowledge that we have um, to, to help the UK um, uh, through that 
transitional period next year. Um, and that actually goes hand in hand with where our business is going, uh, and that relates to technology. Um, and we have a, um, a really exciting new collaboration that uh, um, is about to uh, hopefully hit the, the marketplace. Um, uh, but it's something that we have, we've always embraced technology. Uh, and I think that's shown really as a business that we're, we're you know, we are a lean business. Mm. Um, but because of the, uh, the, the technology that we have uh, um, invested in, um, certainly over the last four years, that investment now has, has exceeded £2 million. Um, it, it's really nice to see that we're able to provide quite a large European client base um, with, with a very efficient consultancy service. And I think, uh, well, I don't think, I, I know that, that, that that's the, 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 the way that this sector is going to have to um, change and, and embrace um, uh, AI and, and machine learning. Certainly going to be an interesting time for the industry, and you're absolutely right. While the COVID-19 tunnel vision is ongoing, the Brexit negotiations are still roaring ahead in the background, and that's also been dominating headlines in some quarters um, this week with the internal market bill, amongst other things. So let's just keep our fingers crossed, of course, that there will be a trade deal in place by the end of the year, and it will make things as easy as possible. And actually, I have to say, just given how enlightening it's been, Neil, having you share some of your views on what's going on at the moment, I think it would be great to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are not just getting along at the business, but we can also just reassess how far we've come as a nation in that time as well. Yeah, obviously I would uh, um, uh, embrace that. Yeah, it would be uh, really good to catch up in, in 12 months' time and see where we all are. Yes, and it's certainly going to be an interesting time for sure. Um, I absolutely, um, I'm confident um, of that. Hopefully, of course, um, that any changes will be for the better. And just given the uh, the variables in all of this as well, do please continue, Neil, to take care and stay safe in the meantime with everything still going on. Yeah, you too, Scott. Good to speak to you and. Uh... Enjoy the uh, sunny weather over the weekend in the capital. Likewise as well, Neil. Um, and I hope the weather is uh, much nicer um, up north um, as well during this period of time. Yeah, well, we're in Manchester, so I'm not going to put any money on that. <laughs> well, let's certainly hope there'll be a little bit of brightness uh, to share around as well. I was speaking on today's programme to Neil Shepherd, founder and CEO of Customs Connect Group Limited. Um, I would also reiterate that last message there to all listeners on the podcast today. Do please continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. Um, next up on the programme, um, we'll be welcoming Sir Jeff Hurst, England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, onto the programme. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City among others but he remains most renowned for the fact that he remains the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup competition and that came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. 
Absolutely. Can't be on thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France, we could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2 0 up in the 90th minute, so victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I wanted to bury it. And I'll be absolutely... I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee. Uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, it, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risks in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that, that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to 
uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of, of making it. But it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out, thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around, to be uh, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and i suppose for every sir alf ramsey and ron greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it oh yes i think it, yes i think it's Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you, you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a a cul-de-sac and B because there weren't as many cars no one as many cars in those days so uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back the goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted that was the goal and it's always a free ball to play football but amongst those houses where we lived and played there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a midfield mm. player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But... What was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise... It's funny how you look at... I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls up and not just setting balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially personally surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. 
And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a still spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time with the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had so um, yes it, it, the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it as long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was, that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England <laughs> new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. And I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. 
I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my, uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.